From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. It's Friday, July 15th. Utah is experiencing more wildfires in the midst of drought and high temperatures. And more of those blazes are being caused by people as our population grows. The job of fire investigators has never been more important. They track down the spark that can lead to prosecutions. Their work also provides crucial data for studying fire causes. Justin Higginbottom speaks to investigators about their large caseload. This spring, volunteers were hard at work near the LaSalle Mountains. They were installing steel netting to capture sediment in Pack Creek. That's to prevent flooding after a massive fire burned nearly 9,000 acres in the area last year. That day, the volunteers were just downstream from the Pack Creek day-use area. It was there someone's abandoned campfire sparked the blaze. We know that because of the work from our state's fire investigators. Pretty much all the land management agencies investigate 100% of their human-caused fires. That's Nick Howell. He's worked with Utah's Bureau of Land Management as a fire investigator for around 14 years. He says when a fire investigator gets to a scene, which can be challenging in itself in rural and remote areas, they get to work analyzing burn patterns and vectors, macro and micro scale indicators. So basically what that means is when a fire burns, it leaves traces of where it originated. And we, we have a standard methodology that we follow as fire investigators. And um, most of the time we're able to track down, pinpoint down to the square inch of where the fire started. Fire investigators in the state have never been busier. 23 out of the 26 fires that started just last weekend were caused by people. Howell says the number depends on the year. 2020 was especially bad. But the trend is not only more wildfires, but more that are human-caused. So far this season, about two-thirds of all new fires were started by people, either through negligence or just bad luck. All of this is a lot of work for investigators, but for them, it's not just about finding a perpetrator. Not only who caused them, but what caused them. So that statistic is, is important as well, and that's what goes into our fire prevention programs. That information helps authorities know where to focus their educational efforts, for example. Those signs on highways warning about hanging chains, those are the result of investigators finding that sparks from those chains can cause a fire. What they've put in place uh, over the last few years is a very comprehensive data collection system that we can drill down now uh, and determine uh, really with a great deal of granularity what's causing these fires how big the fires are getting, etc. That's Jim Winder. He's the chief investigator with the Department of Natural Resources, Division of Forestry, Fire, and State Lands. He's also the former Moab City police chief. He says the data is also important in tracking new trends. For example, as gun ownership in the state has increased, so has fires caused by target shooting. Many people, and I encounter them on a regular basis, don't believe that a two two three rifle fired into, say, a stack of tires can start a fire. When education doesn't work, investigators work with law enforcement to track down who caused the fire. When a person flees without reporting it or doesn't realize they started a wildfire, he says they're pretty good at finding them. I don't want to go into too much details, but you can imagine. We use uh, we use a variety of resources, and in my opinion, we're, we're highly successful at locating people even in remote areas that have committed these kinds of crimes. 
At a press conference this week with the Jacob City fire still burning in the background, Governor Spencer Cox told Utahns you will be held responsible if you start a fire. A suspect was arrested in that blaze for reckless burning and reckless endangerment. Winder says to think of it as a hit and run. If you start a fire, it will be much better for you to report it right away. A lot of the fires I investigate, I'll be honest with you, are, you know, they're stupid human tricks. They're, 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 they're people doing things they really ought not be doing, and, and they're placing you know, all of us at risk, and they're costing taxpayers a significant amount of money. Becoming a fire investigator is a lengthy process. It takes courses and a mentorship program, learning the latest fire science, which is constantly updated. This all can take up to five years. It's a, it's, it's a very interesting and a challenging field, and it takes a lot of time and effort to, to be proficient at it. He says there's around 14 investigators statewide currently, and there's a demand for more. Last year, Division of Forestry fired state lands. We had 1,300 fires in the state of Utah. Roughly 60, 70% of those are almost every season human caused. You do the math. By the time you extrapolate back the number of criminal prosecutions that are potential in that, we're dealing with hundreds of cases a year. Howell with the BLM explains that in Utah, this work isn't full-time. We don't have people that solely investigate wildfires. Fire investigation for the land management agencies is a collateral duty for most agencies. So yeah, there's, there's, there's a day job associated with the investigators. They rely on firefighters to supplement their training. He's heard that Nevada has one full-time investigator, and he thinks Utah may head in that direction. That is part of our regular conversations on how to appropriately staff qualified and trained fire investigators and not only meet the demands of today, but to meet the demands of the future as our communities continue to grow exponentially. It's a conversation that is getting more desperate. Meanwhile, although investigators found what caused that Pat Creek fire outside of Moab, they don't know who caused it. That will take more work. Justin Higginbottom for KZMU News. Proponents of electric vehicles say they provide an economical and environmentally friendly way to get from point A to point B. But the lack of charging stations often limits drivers to short trips. That could soon change. Mark Richardson with our partners at the Public News Service reports. The West Electric Highway Program aims to install fast charging stations every 50 miles along rural highways in Utah and other western states. The project is funded through the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law approved by Congress last year. Tammy Bostic with the Utah Clean Cities Coalition, the lead agency on the project, says the Charge West network will take the worry out of driving an EV across the state. When we look at Charge West, it's an opportunity for us to imagine electrified transportation fully and to know that we can travel with range confidence to our destinations and be able to return. Other participating states include Arizona, Colorado, Idaho, Montana, Nevada, New Mexico, and Wyoming. Bostic says the program is the first of its type and hopes it will be a model for other states to follow. The West Electric Highway Program is backed by a coalition of local and state governments, environmental groups, and tourism officials. Bostic said it will particularly benefit Utah's vacation destinations. Secondary highways, the scenic byways, the places that lead us to the places that we travel to, which are our national parks, our monuments, our state parks, our recreation areas. Bostic notes that a major challenge to building the West Electric Highway system will be a lack of electrical infrastructure needed to power fast charging stations in many of the rural areas. One of the challenges 
challenges we have is that some of these more rural areas do not have the electrical infrastructure currently, like fast charging. So that's a great opportunity to use some of this new federal dollar investment to invest heavily in our infrastructure. The Western Electric Highway Program is the first fast charging project approved from the $2.5 billion allocated for projects under the National Electric Vehicle Charging Network. Mark Richardson reporting. In Montana, children and young adults are suing the state over energy policies they say are hurting their health and environment. The flooding that closed Yellowstone National Park may show they have a point. Matt Voles of Kaiser Health News reports for the Mountain West News Bureau. Scientists say the flooding that temporarily closed Yellowstone National Park last month is the type of extreme weather that should be expected as the climate continues to warm. It also illustrates why 16 Montana children and young adults are suing their state. They claim that Montana's energy policies and reliance on fossil fuels are contributing to a deteriorating climate and violating their right to a clean and healthful environment guaranteed in the state's constitution. The lawsuit is on track to become the first such climate case to go to trial in the United States. Children in Virginia, Utah, and Hawaii have filed similar challenges this year. They are represented by a nonprofit law firm called Our Children's Trust. Attorney Nate Bellinger says children have the most to lose with climate change and they are the least politically powerful group. Montana Attorney General Austin Knudsen has asked the state Supreme Court to dismiss the children's case, which he described as a climate crusade. This is Matt Wolves. And now, the Weekly Newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. Local Clay Petty died this week after being swept away by the Colorado River near the Potash boat ramp. The incident occurred on Sunday, and his body was recovered roughly a mile downriver on Tuesday. Sophia Fisher with the Times Independent has more from their coverage. It was around 3.30 p.m. Sunday, and according to the sheriff's uh, statement that they posted on Facebook, he had been helping somebody cross the river, and then according to a Facebook post from his daughter, he'd been saving a 63-year-old woman from drowning um, when he was pulled downstream. This report says that his disappearance led to a multi-day, multi-agency search along the river, and unfortunately he was found deceased on Tuesday. Tuesday morning, yep, about a mile downstream of the boat ramp. Um, And according to his sister-in-law, Michelle Peterson, Petty loved everything Moab. She talked about how he was an amazing four-wheeler, and he loved to rock climb and and mountain bike and ride his motorcycle. But more importantly, she said, Clay never put his needs before the needs of others. Mm -hmm. If you called, he answered, no matter the need or time of day, and he'll be deeply missed. Our condolences go out to his friends and family. Absolutely. Now, where do you want to take us next in the Times Independent? Um, Yeah, we have a lot of of local government stories. Moab City is taking a harder look at how it permits special events. Um, interestingly, it's doing it right at the same time that Grand County is also revisiting its special events process, but the two government agencies are doing it for two different reasons and kind of looking at two different things. Um, so Grand County is addressing special events permitting because of miscommunication issues within staffing and also due to overwhelming demand from event organizers. The city, on the other hand, is responding essentially to what happened with Scots on the Rocks the past couple months, which I'm sure people know about. But essentially, Scots on the Rocks is this annual Celtic festival that's been taking place downtown in the ballparks. And they were denied uh, their event permit for this year, this past April, with the city council citing a couple of local complaints about noise. At the same time, Councillor Jason Taylor said he didn't feel comfortable denying the permit because the event organizers had never been told about the complaints and never been given a chance to address them. So long story 
story short, Scots on the Rocks has now been reapproved, but at the same time, the city is trying to make sure that something like that doesn't happen again. Okay, so two separate processes. I appreciate you putting them into two different buckets, but it is interesting that both the city and the county are dealing with updating or strengthening or revising, whatever, however you want to put it, their special events permitting process for different reasons. Um, mm-hmm. But it just seems like in both the city and the county, there is more demand. Um, for events. Is that what you found in your reporting? Absolutely. And part of what the city's looking at is the quote noise and intensity of different events. And they're acknowledging, for example, that Swanee City Park sees a lot of events throughout the year. And they're also, you know, throughout this process talking about trying to spread out more events among mm-hmm. venues or limit the number of really noisy events that we have. So absolutely, mm-hmm. they're, they're different processes, but they're both reacting to kind of the same forces, I would say. So, you know, the city, like you, you mentioned, a, a lot of those um, forces come down to noise, right? Um, now, for the county, you mentioned miscommunication issues. Can you, can you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, essentially, so far, the county special events process has been handled by a special events committee, but at the same time, event organizers are often talking to both the um, Travel Council slash Economic Development Department, as well as the Old Spanish Trail Arena, which is where a ton of county events take place. So mm-hmm. this was discussed in a county commission meeting just a couple of weeks ago about just how there have been challenges where like somebody at the Spanish Trail Arena will tell an organizer to reach out to the Economic Development department staffer and that staffer never hears from them and Mm. then it's like four days before the event and it's just um wires getting crossed Mm. essentially and Mm. it would just be much easier for them to consolidate all of that within kind of one department so that's on the county side well anything else to mention about um this look into special events permitting in our local government I think, you know, conversation is ongoing. This was just a beginning brainstorm, so it'll come before city council again, you know, in the next couple of weeks. Um, But I think there's some really interesting um, ideas put out there, such as, like, post-event debriefs between city staffers and event organizers. Um, Councillor Luke Wojciechowski had the idea of requesting that events um, commit a certain amount of their proceeds to local nonprofits. So a lot of cool ideas kind of being thrown around right now. And it'll be interesting to see how those ideas get kind of um, honed in. Okay. All right. So the city council's process is ongoing. What about the county commission's process? Is that um, also ongoing? Also ongoing. They had a quote, I think it was a special events philosophy meeting a couple weeks ago is what they were calling it. So they're also talking about updates to that process. Where would you like to take us next? I know there's a story on the inside of the paper um, about a roundabout. Yes, the oft-talked-about roundabout, which is coming to 100 West and 400 North, right by Swanee Park and HMK Elementary. Unfortunately, rising costs are causing the roundabout to hit some delays. The total price tag for the roundabout has actually doubled from 2017 when it was first discussed, according to Moab City engineer Chuck Williams. It was originally $1.1 million, and now it's $2 million. But that's not the city's share. That's just the overall price tag. Okay. The city's share right now is about $400,000. And I'm not entirely sure what it was in 2017, but I think it was more around one or $200,000. So at least a doubling of the price tag. And this roundabout had been slated to improve um, traffic at this intersection of 100 West and 400 North. Mm-hmm. Does this mean that it's um, still going to go forward despite the doubling of the cost? 
Um, it's hard to say. I mean, I hope at some point in some form. Um, but for right now, Williams has just delayed, you know, any sort of construction because it is over budget now. And he doesn't want to go forward without figuring out how to handle that. Mm. Um, he said that he has spent hours and hours looking into ways to cut costs, but right now hasn't, you know, like found the solution. So this is another story that's kind of going to continue in development. Um, and yeah, that intersection, we have a good quote from Williams. He said, quote, that intersection is such a mess, which I think, you know, many people mm-hmm. can resonate with. And there's an associated dream drainage too that kind of causes you to if you're in a car Mm -hmm. or a bike drop right down come back up and they're trying to fix that as part of the process as well Mm -hmm. so eagerly definitely eagerly awaiting a solution on this but it's kind of unclear um, what next steps are at this moment now Sophia if you could you know humor me for a moment I am terrible at the 100s and 200s and 300s do you mind in case there's a listener out there who is the same as me do you mind describing where this corner is in in other terms oh absolutely yeah whenever anyone throws out those (laughs) street numbers I have to like spend a minute thinking about my mental map um so it's 100 west and 400 north which is at the corner of Swanee Park it's also where the Spanish Valley Mortuary is and it's very close to HMK and Mi Vida that's that is helpful because you know that shows us that that is a busy zone exactly especially when school is starting and ending each day for sure yeah moving on there is um a fun casting call that's highlighted in the Times Independent yes I'm calling it in my head the Kevin Costner casting call just for all of those uh, alliterative sounds. Um, but yeah, the Horizon Project, which is go- which is led by famed actor and director Kevin Costner, is going to be holding open casting calls at Star Hall on July 29th and 30th. Okay, so this is this big film project that I know has been covered in the TI. You know, there were film incentives from the state legislature to get it to rural Utah, and it is actually coming. Um, tell me a little bit more details about who they're looking for. Absolutely. So a few different groups of people. So they're looking, first of all, for extras, which I believe is a non-speaking role. And that's both indigenous and non-indigenous men, women and children of all ages. Then there are speaking roles, and those are for um, indigenous and non-indigenous men ages 25 to 40. Uh, The same for women, but ages 18 to 40. And then for boys ages 10 to 14. And then finally, Horizon is also seeking adult, which is to say 18 plus, horseback riders. Um, So those with horseback riding skills, you have to bring a video of your your skills on your phone and you will be asked to ride, but horses, quote, will be provided. (laughs) Yeah, remind us again, where is this? When is this? Yeah, Star Hall, uh, July 29th and 30th from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. There are a few more instructions, like you're not supposed to wear heavy eyelashes or heavy makeup. You don't need to prepare. There will be sizes taken and photos taken on site Um, but definitely check out the Moab to Monument Valley Film Commission Facebook page or other social media channels uh, to get more details and the first round of filming is going to be this fall in Grand County which is really cool. Sophia Fisher staff writer at the Times Independent. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com. Getting local food into local schools can be a challenge but there's one Utah program that's trying to make it easier. Allison Harford of the Moab Sun News profiled this program and has more from that coverage. Yeah, so Farm to Fork is a statewide program um, that is, it kind of acts as a network that brings together farmers, schools, and community stakeholders, all with the goal of bringing local foods to schools for, you know, this is like for meals um, and also for agriculture education and for more like garden-based learning, which is something that the Youth Garden Project does really well. 
And did you say, and for, forgive me, did you say this is a statewide program? Yeah, so okay. this is a statewide program. Um, so it has a lot of challenges. And so I talked to Kelsey Hall and Kate Wheeler, both who work on this program. And Kelsey is a local food marketing specialist for Utah State University. Um, and Kate Wheeler works for the Utah State Board of Education. So basically what they're trying to do with this program is just figure out how to move it forward because right now they haven't been able to achieve this goal of getting more foods um, in schools and so they're hosting these like series of workshops all over the state um, to try to figure out like what people would want to see from this program and what they think the challenges are in their communities Um, and then they'll take all of this information and move forward with it and create like a strategic plan. Okay so they're going to communities across the state. Right yeah and one of those communities is Moab. Um, so they're going to come here on Wednesday, July 20th, and basically just lead this little workshop. Um, and Emily Roberson, who's the director of the Youth Garden Project, will also be there um, helping Kate Wheeler kind of lead and host um, this visioning process. What does Moab's local food to school landscape look like right now? Yeah, so Moab does it really well, um, mostly because of the Youth Garden Project. But that's kind of one of the challenges of this program is that it's really hard to establish things that are as good as the Youth Garden Project. Um, And it kind of almost takes another nonprofit like what we have in Moab instead of just a direct like farmers to schools kind of relationship. Um, And so that's what Kelsey and Kate are really working on is trying to figure out like what farmers need and what schools need to create a more direct link. But, you know, if communities can have something like the Youth Garden Project, then that's amazing. It's always just really interesting learning about agriculture issues in Utah because we are in a desert. Um, And one thing that Kelsey said that also makes it really hard um, to get local foods in schools is that there aren't really a lot of local foods. Like, we live in a desert, um, and most of Utah's agriculture is devoted to livestock, so it's a lot of meat and dairy. And a lot of times, schools don't really have the kitchens needed to process, like, raw livestock products. And so... I think there are just a lot of challenges to this. And then the benefits of local foods are immense. It just makes you eat healthier. You kind of learn the whole process. So this is a really important thing. And I'm really hoping that they um, can figure out kind of a plan that would make this work. So what else would you like to highlight in the Moab Sun News this week? So Community Rebuilds is hosting a really exciting um, week-long workshop. Um, And they're calling it Community Rebuilds Essentials. And this is the first time they've ever done something like this. And so people can come for the week and learn basically um, all about everything that Community Rebuilds does. And so this, the nonprofit is kind of trying to establish itself as both an organization that builds houses and also an organization that will teach you how to build a house. Um, And so a lot of the time their education programming is in the form of their like building internship. Um, which is usually a couple months, and a lot of people can't do that. And so they're trying to create this week-long course for people um, who do want to learn, you know, how to build a straw bale house or how to establish something like community rebuilds in their community. And so it's supposed to just kind of be like a very basic, very accessible course. Remind me when this is coming up. The instructional days are July 25th to the 29th. Um, and there are a couple different ways to do it. So people can purchase a day pass. They can also purchase a non-residential or local pass. Um, and non-residential 
relates to the other level of registration, which is a residential pass, which means that um, you would stay in the bunkhouse. So locals who already live here can purchase this non-residential pass and then go to the instructional days. Well, this is really interesting that Community Rebuilds, you know, they've they've always been an education program. They've had that internship Mm -hmm. um, where you learn how to build a straw bale house over the course of several months. Right. Um, But this seems like a new venture for them, as you explained. Yeah. So there will be five days um, in this workshop. It'll kick off with like learning about CR and how it was founded. Um, And then they'll cover wall systems and the basics of working with straw. Participants will travel to a current CR work site, um, the Moab Area Community Land Trust, and they'll learn about and practice working with earthen plasters. Um, And then the last day, we'll wrap it all up with a lecture by Chris Magwood, who is an expert in carbon capture construction. And finally, Ali, you know, the Sun has a ton of events to read about this week, as usual. Mm -hmm. Um, There's another event coming up, an artistic event. This one will take place on Monday, July 18th at 6 p.m. at The Mark, and it's kind of a mystery workshop. So The Mark currently has this artist-in-residence for its reuse residency, and the artist is Justin Tyler Tate, um, and Tate is an artist that covers a lot of mediums um, in Moab for this specific residency he's creating this like interactive structure which is also kind of a secret the workshop that he's hosting on monday is called fake it till you make it and the details of the workshop so both the subject and the materials that people will be working with um, will be announced to workshop participants only when the session begins so this is a mystery workshop literally a mystery workshop Um, and so Tate has been um, hosting these workshops since 2011 um, and each session is on a different topic so like past sessions included creating inflatable sculptures made of plastic and aluminum foil um, cooking samosa learning the basics of structural engineering, making tea from foraged nettle, and making a terrarium in a bottle with an LED grow light. Okay, so people are encouraged to show up Mm -hmm. and then get surprised. Yeah, it's really just about learning um, and working with each other. And so the workshop is both an opportunity to learn something new and also work with um, maybe some new people who you haven't met before. And I know the Moabs and News has covered this artist residency in one of their previous papers, right? Mm-hmm. So if people want to learn more about him, they can find that online. Um, anything else to say about the residency program in general? Yeah, so the residency program is really interesting because um, the artist can only use materials that have come from Moab's uh, waste stream. Mm-hmm. And so um, Tate will finish up the project at the end of July. Mm-hmm. And the interactive piece will be installed at Lions Park. Allison Harford, staff writer at the Moab Sun News. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabsunnews.com. That's it for the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. You can find the pieces that were mentioned today in the show notes at our website, kzmu.org, or wherever you listen to the KZMU News podcast. As always, thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU, community-powered radio.